Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. So, you guys, Ben is not here. He was supposed to be here. But he sent in what he thought would be a very helpful script in his absence. <laughs> okay. I have it right here. <laughs> Burn. Just nice rip it up. That's what I think. It's better than the alternative. <laughs> What's <right>? the alternative? <laughs> she never did say. Oh. That's like the classic mom move. Right. right? Like, you don't want to find out. <laughs> Teach you not to shake my hand. Get back in there. <laughs> I love that it got gift within like 20 seconds of it happening, too. The internet's a magical place. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the impeached forever edition. <laughs> the tear up the script edition. <laughs> tear up the script, quite literally. <laughs> nice. We might be impeached forever. We think this is ending today. No, but. it's never, ever, ever ending because not only will this president be continually impeached, but every future president will now be impeached immediately upon inauguration. Mm-hmm. True. That is and we'll true. impeach Joe Biden just in case, even <laughs> if he doesn't win. And Hillary Clinton, let's just throw her in there. <laughs> right. Impeach you them can, all. You can do retro impeachment. Exactly. Can he be impeached as a former vice president? You have to be currently in office, right? You do, okay. actually. Yeah. Because you, you impeached be and removed. In yeah. Interesting. Well, we're going to find out. I am here in the jungle studio with my goods friends tomorrow. My goods friends. My goods friends. My, my friends who sell goods. Attorneys general. My attorneys general. Friends good. <laughs> to our coffee with a Susan Hennessy and Margaret Taylor joining us. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Hi guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a big day. We are recording this podcast at 2.41 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, at 4 p.m., the Senate is expected to vote on the articles of impeachment uh, and barring some amazingly unforeseen consequence, which will make this really funny if you're listening to it. Like John McCain rising from the grave, <laughs> going into the well of the Senate and putting his thumb down. Yeah, right. <laughs> Taking Lindsey Graham by the scruff of his neck and marching him to the floor. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, the Senate will vote to uh, acquit President Trump of the two articles of impeachment. So uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk first about the whole impeachment saga and ordeal and what it means and where it has brought us. And then in the second segment, we're going to look forward to what will happen next because, as savvy listeners know, the Ukraine saga is not over and there will be more to come. Uh, in our third segment, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and what governments are doing around the world to deal with the threat of a possible pandemic. Um, so let's start with the the pending news. Um, as we record this, by the way, Senator Mitt Romney has said that he is going to vote to convict on the first article of impeachment uh, of the president abusing his office by seeking to get Ukraine to interfere in the presidential election and investigate the Bidens and Democrats. Uh, But he will vote to uh, uh, quit on the obstruction piece. Uh, Margaret, just reflect very briefly on that. And, 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 you know, A, are you surprised by that? And B, what does that mean now that there is going to be a bipartisan uh, vote, although it may be only one Republican, in favor of convicting the president, at least on some of the charges? I was surprised by it. I I didn't expect it. Um, And I actually do think it's a big deal because to be able to say it was a bipartisan vote to convict – Even if it is just one senator, that still is pretty powerful. And I think, you know, I was sort of reflecting on on him and what he was saying. And it shows like there is one person, one elected Republican on Capitol Hill who is willing to sort of separate himself from Trump. And that's pretty astounding, given that we haven't seen that like literally at all uh, from anyone else. So I I think it is quite significant, actually, even though it doesn't change the obvious outcome that is going to happen. Susan, what are your first thoughts now that we arrive at the end of the trial? And and, and an outcome that we all understood was essentially, you know, 
preordained. There was no real expectation, I think, that three, that two-thirds of the Senate were going to vote to convict the president. So what are your first thoughts now that we are at the at the end of this? And, um, and do you think it was a worthwhile exercise? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. One, um, I, I agree with Margaret. I'm genuinely surprised by, by Mitt Romney's vote and, and really quite moved by it. I mean, this is sort of a, a really dark and low week in, um, in American politics and I think ultimately in American history that members of the Senate would come forward and say, yeah, he did it. Um, I know he did it. We all know he did it and, and I don't care. And actually, the power of somebody standing up and just speaking the truth is, um, is something that's so rare and so astonishing these days. And it really does, um, I think, change the way we will understand this moment moving forward, Um, in part because it's going to be bipartisan, in part because Mitt Romney is now the first senator in American history to vote to convict a president of his own party, Um, and because of sort of the stark terms that he put it in, that was not this was a close call or, you know, I'm not sure about the evidence or this or that, but of course he did it. And of course, this wasn't some technical violation of of the Impoundment Control Act. This was a stunning, egregious abuse of power and, and a violation of his oath of office. And, and I'm not going to sit here and, and tolerate it. And, and my religious conviction and, and commitments to, to God and country require me to sort of say the truth and, and vote to convict here. And I, I think it both um, really does shame his uh, his colleagues. So, you know, we never thought that there were going to be two-thirds uh, the Senate uh, was going to vote to convict. That said, um, I think that there was reasonable hope that there might have been two or three uh, members who were going to join with Mitt Romney. And, and at the end of the day, they couldn't even muster enough votes to actually hear witnesses moving forward. And so I actually think this is a really significant moment that's that's just going to sort of change the narrative and, and a narrative that had sort of collapsed into, well, you know, the inevitability of this moment. And was this all just the same old, same old? And here's Trump walking away once again, you know, just sort of a, a basic act of um, of real political courage, I think, kind of turns everything on its head. Um, you know, look, at the same time yesterday, um, I think it was Gallup released new polling suggesting that Pre- President Trump has returned to his highest ever approval rating, still 49%, which is underwater. Um, but a little bit might vindicate people who said he's going to get an impeachment bounce and, and this actually might end up helping him politically. Um, I'm not prepared to concede that yet from a, from a single poll. I think we would need to see it over time. And I think there are a lot of differences between this and sort of the, the post-Clinton situation. Um, you know, that said, I, I sort of remained convinced now, uh, the same that I did at the outset, that this was, uh, you know, a, a worthwhile undertaking. And, and I think the proof of that is just let's consider the the additional information that we've learned since these impeachment proceedings began. We would not have known what happened. And so for better or for worse, the American people are going to make a choice in November 2020. And at least now we can say, no, we don't have every piece of testimony. No, we don't have every piece of the picture. But we understand what happened here so we can make a judgment. And, and Tammy, one other way that it seems Romney splits from his Republican colleagues is we've heard some senators come out and say, yes, I believe that the House managers proved their case, notably Lamar Alexander and Senator Rubio, uh, but saying, but I didn't think it rose to the level or sort of finding some way to kind of you know, right. elide the central right. question. And it, kind of, it seems to me that, that Romney's decision only underscores that the more and kind of you know, really does in a way put it back on people like Alexander and, and, and Rubio to say, look, you know, I see this kind of, you know, why don't you? Yeah, so I think I said last week that it felt to me like the entire Republican Senate delegation was standing at the edge of a cliff holding hands and deciding whether they could all jump together. And in a way, in order to come through the acquittal successfully, they really needed to do it all together because the unanimity is part of what helps to preserve the fig leaf of the ridiculous arguments that they're making about why this isn't really a problem or why he didn't actually do uh, what he did. And so I do think that Mitt Romney's taking this stance, um, whether it's on the basis of personal conviction or religious faith or fealty to his oath of office or what have you, I do think it pulls away that fig leaf. But let's be honest, it was always a fig leaf. And so the impact is more psychological than it is, I think, political or practical. These guys were going to face constant questions from national media 
just you know on justifying their stance anyway. So I don't think it actually changes that much. I do think one thing is different today that I'm not sure I anticipated at the outset of the impeachment process. And, you know, going back to where we were in September or in August when we were still contemplating the possibility of impeaching the president and what's the point when we know the Senate will never vote to convict. I think Susan's absolutely right to say we know a lot more today about all of this about the web of corruption and self-interest surrounding the president in his friends and associates, about the mentality of the president himself that he brings to his work every day and how he interacts with people, including foreign leaders and including senior American officials. I think the way he thinks about members of Congress, especially Republican members of Congress, as mere instruments of his own will and the degree of blind loyalty that he demands and the intolerance he has for any deviation from that, all of that we know much, much more about today as a result of this impeachment process. And so, you know, if I thought before that the process was going to allow Democrats to set up their arguments for November 2020 and allow Republicans to set up their arguments for November 2020, I think it has done that. But I think it's done something more also in that it really has put on clear display what you're voting for (laughs) when you choose not only on the presidential ballot, but on all the lower ballots too, you know, at the state level and congressional level and so on, because the Republican Party is so thoroughly Trump's personal, you know, loyalty organ at this point. And the fact that Mitt Romney articulated so clearly today that he knows he's going to face tremendous costs as a result of making this choice, and he will, and we will all see that play out, you know, that is only going to underscore the extent to which it's a, the party, the Republican Party is a cult of personality. You know, does that matter in the election? I don't know. I guess the other thing I I feel like we've seen just over the last couple of days is that we anticipated that impeachment might mobilize the Republican base and make it more energized to turn out to defend their guy who's under attack by these relentless Republicans. But I feel like that narrative um, by the the president's defenders over the course of the impeachment trial kind of exhausted itself. And what the president ended up doing last night in his State of the Union was more of trying to make a substantive policy argument for re-election, which I didn't think he was going to have to make, right? Um, And to me, that's a sign of vulnerability. It's a sign of weakness. This is a really, really close election coming up. Yeah, I completely agree with Timmy that the effect of Romney is is the bursting of the bubble. And we've talked about sort of the the implausible deniability. Um, That said, I also will be really, really interested to see how his Republican colleagues respond to this, because Romney is also offering them a a little bit of an off-ramp or sort of an extended hand here. And that's that, um, you know, his other Republicans in Congress have um, made a different choice and I think really have failed the test. And there's lots of people in in the House to point to and, and obviously obviously his uh, Republican colleagues in the Senate as well. Um, That said, Romney's vote now gives them a way to defend the institutional equities of their body uh, in a way that might be more politically palatable. So I do, I think it will be really interesting to see if over the next couple of days, as Romney surely is subjected to just a barrage of attacks from the president um, and and his sort of staunchest defenders, is whether or not we see people like Susan Collins and and Murkowski and Cory Gardner and people saying, um, I don't agree with Mitt Romney's vote. I didn't reach the same conclusion, but he was right to cast a vote for his conscience. And we are not mere partisan actors running cover for the president. And, oh, that's and a really actually, interesting question. Like giving yeah. them the opportunity to yeah. stand up for him and to stand up for this idea without having to embrace it themselves politically. On one hand, I, I sort of want to roll my eyes and think like, you idiot. 
candidates. Like, you know, you, this, these are the exact same people that just disappointed you on witnesses and just cast their votes. Um, that said, I, I actually think like the the way to react to seeing something like what Romney did um, is is to learn from it and to think like, OK, you know, I, I doubted Mitt Romney. I, I didn't think that he would rise to this moment. Um, and, and I was wrong. And so, you know, I, I think we should learn the lesson a little bit of, um, you know, our better angels do still exist and, and this constitutional structure can still function when we believe in it and agree with it. And so I am going to like take this optimism and, and want to want to say at least that I hope that we will see um, we will see his colleagues at least defend um his right to make yeah. this decision and, and the decency and, and the good faith and principle behind his decision, um, even if they didn't get there themselves. Margaret, can you reflect on the thing, respond to that too, and, and reflect on, I mean, in just a few minutes we have here in the segment left, the, the kind of the lasting reputational, I don't want to say damage because I don't want to make this loaded, but you know whether the Congress has been damaged by this or not. And like what onus is there on the Congress at this point to – you know, if you know, arguably there's a need in the eyes of you know half the country, probably anyway, to kind of redeem you know some of its its legitimacy as an independent, co-equal branch of government, and not look like it is simply a body that is hopelessly locked uh, in partisan camps. Can that happen? Does it need? To, do members need to think about that? So I do think that substantial damage has been done based on this outcome. In particular, I, I do question the viability of the impeachment power itself going forward. Oh, really? I don't know what that looks huh. like exactly, at least when there's a Republican president. I would have um, thought you would have said this is like preserve the impeachment power because Congress flexed that muscle and didn't just give the president to pass. Yeah, no, that's also true. I mean, it's mixed, right? Yeah, okay. um, but my, I mean, my personal view is that this this evidence I, I I'm in the Mitt Romney camp. Uh, you know, this evidence is so overwhelming. Right. You know, the that senators, uh, a lot of them believe this sort of kooky legal theory offered by Alan Dershowitz and hung their hat on that. I mean, it's all just sort of uh, I don't I don't subscribe to any of it. And so, um, you know, there is this question of when when history looks back on this Senate, what what will they what will they say about it? I do think Mitt Romney has done them a bit of a solid, uh, making it look a little bit better. Um, and I just you know something that Susan said got me thinking. You know maybe maybe in some very very small way, what Romney decided to do offers somewhat of a cathartic moment for the body, for the Senate, for Americans. I went back and watched the um, the end of the Bill Clinton you know, impeachment trial and sort of what that was. Um, and I, I believe it was the last person to make a presentation was uh, former Senator Senator Dale Bumpers. And he had just left the Senate a few, you know, like a month before, a few days before, whatever. He was out of the Senate. He came back. He gave the closing sort of argument for uh, for Clinton. And he made them all laugh. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was I was really kind of amazed. He he just said something and all of it seemed like the whole chamber sort of laughed together and there was this cathartic moment. Thereafter, Bill Clinton came out into the Rose Garden alone. He went up to the lectern and he said, I am sorry for what I have put the nation through. Um, and there was this sort of cathartic moment. And we just haven't, we up until this little Mitt Romney thing today, we just haven't seen any of that. There's no catharsis. This thing goes on and on and on. Um, and just to answer quickly, you know, your real question about what what does this look like going forward for the Congress? Um, I mean, I think we're, we're going to continue sort of to see these sort of bloody battles going back and forth. Um, Congress now, the House, they're going to have to be in court on everything. And so we'll see where that goes. There are some cases that are teed up to be decided by the Supreme Court that could set a new baseline about information provided by the executive branch to to the Congress. So we'll see where that lands. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's not a great place. So let's talk in our second segment here about exactly what comes next. So just to put a few coming attractions on the table, John Bolton's book, presuming that the White House does not try to block it on what I think we would all agree are dubious grounds, that it contains tons of classified information. That's coming out next month. There will inevitably be more revelations from news reports, from Lev Parnas. There will be other stuff that comes out, I would imagine, about the Ukraine story. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has a podcast of his own uh, and seems not likely to back down. So like the Rudy potential Rudy, seems super Rudy, you're such a copycat. High. I mean yeah, – Seriously. 
He doesn't have like you know cool band names though the way we no, do. No, he doesn't have Sophia. Now, yeah, now he will. Yeah, yeah, totally. He's gonna give Sophia a contract. <laughs> you know, um, so can I just interject really yeah. quickly? Um, I did read a press report that uh, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler, was planning on subpoenaing John Bolton. And so it uh-huh. may be the case that we won't have to wait until next month when okay. John Bolton's book is out. Right. But who knows? Right. He didn't want to testify in the House. Yeah, he's something he against House he was, subpoenas, but not <laughs> he Senate He was too ones. good for the House. He right. only wanted to testify in the Senate. So we'll see how that goes. Right. But that is something that's kind of a question mark on, on next steps forward for yeah. Congress. So, so this is, yeah, Susan, this is, this is, so this is still a kind of a live wire, but as a matter of impeachment. Probably not, but but this this story has not ended, and it will. This will be now a campaign season filled with these kinds of revelations. Yeah. So two things. One, um, I don't know that we're going to see John Bolton's book in a month. Um, I think John Bolton's plan has backfired magnificently on him. Um, that Bolton, I, I really believe, was. Uh, you know, trying to sort of, uh, you know, not comply with the House subpoenas uh, in order to have this sort of 11th hour reveal in the Senate. I think he genuinely believed that the Senate was going to call him. Uh, I think that he needed the Senate to call him in order Even to Even John Bolton couldn't understand the depths of cravenness exactly. in the Republican Senate. <laughs> but that he, he needed it for pre-publication review purposes because, of course, once he's compelled to testify and it's out in public, that makes it really, really difficult for the White House to block his book. Um, that backfired, right? He played it a little too cute, a little too coy, and now he's in a situation in which the White House has enormous control over classified information, over the pre-publication review process. And there's no longer any forcing mechanism unless Bolton now decides to uh, to go and comply with the House subpoena. The House is good enough after all. Right. And, and also, let's keep in mind sort of the the um, unsustainability of, of John Bolton's position from the outset. He was arguing he did not, uh, on executive privilege grounds, that he shouldn't ha- be compelled to share this information with Congress. All the while, he's writing a book in which he's sharing this information that he plans to publish, right? Just a liar, right? He did not believe this was that he had any obligation to executive privilege. He just didn't want to testify in front of Congress. And so actually, you know, I I, I want to see what's in John Bolton's book, and, and I hope the American public gets to hear that testimony. That said, uh, there's a little bit of a comeuppance here because John Bolton may actually have put himself, schemed himself right into the position of never allowing his book to ultimately come out. You know, I think there is another irony here, which is that by the time Bolton either testifies or the book is released and we find out what it is he he has to tell us, no one may believe him because he, the way he has played this has destroyed his own credibility by lying about the reasons why he, you know, wouldn't respond in the House by lying about why he was going about the strategy he had with respect to the Senate. And, you know, why should we believe what he has to say about this? And I think that part of the power of the testimony from other officials over the course of this impeachment saga has been not that they were dragged there reluctantly, but that it was just so simple. Oh, Okay, let me tell you what I saw. Let me tell you what I know. Let me tell you what I don't know. They weren't playing games. And the games he played, I think, is going to mean that if and when he ever does testify, number one, it'll be very easy for defenders of the president to dismiss it as self-interested storytelling. But number two, it might actually be self-interested storytelling. And how will we know? So I actually think that does damage to our ability to find out the full story. Yeah, I actually think there's a lot of this depends as well on how the Democrats decide to play this. You know, Shane, I think you're completely right that this now becomes a campaign issue. The idea that they reopen impeachment proceedings is sort of um, just not plausible on its face. Um, That said, do Democrats now just drop this or do they actually sort of have the courage of their own convictions that this is a serious national security matter? And each time a new piece of information comes out, you know, saying, look, this is what Republicans refuse to hear and refuse to learn about. This is how they voted and actually making that 
central to sort of their argument against the president, that this is a president who has abused his office, who has misused it in a way that harmed American national security interests, and that they're not going to engage in this sort of ordinary policy debate that makes Trump seem like just just another Republican president they happen to not agree with if they're going to return again and again and say, look, Republicans in Congress were too craven and were too afraid to do the right thing. But the American people have a vote in this too. They can make a different choice and and actually continue to sustain this as as an important message. Or if instead they'll kind of say, well, we took a shot of impeachment. It didn't work. So, all right, let's just talk about health care now. Let's kind of let's all move on with our lives. And I actually think that would be um, sort of a mistake and a little bit sort of lend some credence to the Republican argument that this actually was just all about politics all along. Margaret, you mentioned Alan Dershowitz's argument when he was speaking in the trial that essentially, you know, if the president thinks that something is in the national interest, it can't be criminal or it can't be impeachable. And that if he thinks, you know, that inviting a foreign government to investigate his rivals is in the national interest because him getting reelected is in the national interest, then it's okay. I think probably maybe some of the statements we saw from people like Alexander and Rubio were calibrated a little bit to try and walk back from what it seems like everyone thought was a ridiculous assertion. At the same time, I think it raises this question, if the Senate has, you know, voted to acquit and largely along, you know, partisan lines, is the Senate then sending a message or at least are the Republicans sending a message to this president? Let's not even think about future presidents, although we can, but for, for this discussion, saying to Donald Trump essentially, there is nothing that you can do that is going to result in your being prematurely removed from office. And if that's so, has that just invited him to do something you know, like this again or to do something that was it is even more clearly abusive? I think that that option is definitely open to him because what the acquittal says is essentially like you can engage in the, in this stuff and, you know, our political system is essentially going to accept it um, until the election comes up. And so what I think what Donald Trump will do is he will calibrate what is best for his election, right? And if what's best for his election is sort of uh, being good, following the teleprompter, sort of like he did last night, he'll do that. If what's best for his reelect is to really just let it all hang out and to be let Donald Trump be Donald Trump and do this stuff and get foreign governments to help him with the reelection, then he'll do that. So um, I do think it'd be interesting to see which which path he takes based on what he thinks his his prospects are. I do just want to go back a little bit to something you said about what, what the senators using for their rationales. I listened to almost all of the senators' speeches from Tuesday night, yesterday, and today, and there there are there are numerous senators, Republican senators, embracing the the Alan Dershowitz oh, theory. Wow. So I don't I don't want to whitewash that. I also noticed in Mitch McConnell's speech that he gave um, just a little interesting phrase in there where he said. Something along the lines of, you know, well, I don't subscribe to the theory that a crime must be committed in order for there to be, uh, you know, impeachable offense and and conviction. Um, and then he sort of went on to say what he was going to say. But he did sort of pull that back a little bit. Not surprising at all. He wants to keep his options open. He wants to keep the body's options open uh, for the future. So I just thought that was just a very, very interesting sort of move that he did uh, to preserve the possibility of, of impeaching a, a Democratic president in the future. Just one small follow-up on that because I, I did not hear all of the speeches and you know, God bless you for sitting through all of them. But the senators who were embracing the Dershowitz theory, did, did they try and rationalize it or, was, or, or did you see them kind of coming – at this more from just a just full-throated embrace and political defense of the president and like, sure, I'll just grab whatever works? Or, you know, do they really seem to intellectually grab with it? Or was it more kind of just devotion to Donald Trump that seemed to be driving them? I perceived it more as the latter. It was, you know, something that was offered from the buffet of mm -hmm. rationales that they could choose from. Um, and some of the senators got up and, you know, they would choose one rationale and sort of run with that. Others got up and they did the full buffet. They went through them all. And, you know, it was a perfect call and everything. So, but I didn't see anyone like truly engage intellectually with Dershowitz's argument, except uh, there was Chris Van Hollen, actually, who's a Democrat from Maryland. He actually did sort of spend some time pushing back uh, on that. But no, the Republicans didn't spend time um, really sort of validating it. But it was something that they mentioned, a lot of them mentioned as a justification for how they're going to vote. 
So I I want to pick up on Margaret's point about um, how President Trump is going to decide what he will and won't do in terms of coloring outside the lines, if you want to call it that. I agree. It's going to be all about what's good for re-election up until the point that, God forbid, he wins re-election. And then it'll be all about whatever enriches him in his post-presidency. But in this moment, like I said before, like this is a really close election. It is almost certain to be a very close election, just like 2016 was a very close election. He will pull out all the stops in terms of dirty tricks, opposition messaging, you know. But if we think about what we have seen in terms of coloring outside the lines by this president and those around him in 2016 and in the presidency, we can expect to see even more of that now that he's gotten away with this is the way I would think about it. So, you know, laundered foreign money going into campaign funds. You know, I think we should expect to see that. Contacts with foreigners who have the ability to do things that may impact the political campaign, you know, contact not going through official channels, not representing official policy, but behind closed doors or through, you know, WhatsApp or whatever. We should expect to see more of that. And the president, you know, taking foreign policy decisions that are not in the national interest on behalf of his political interest, we should definitely expect to see that. Uh, ben just tweeted, since he's not here, I'll read it. Prediction, the next round of this scandal will involve the president seeking some kind of an investigation of Mitt Romney. Look, I think, <laughs> that's, I think that's plausible. I think he's being serious. Oh, the yeah. Way. I think that's yeah. plausible. Uh, the, reportedly, the president is already calling for some kind of investigation into John Bolton for leaks of classified information, clearly a politically motiva- motivated investigation. You know, last night I tweeted in, in seriousness, how long until we see that President Trump, now that Bernie Sanders did reasonably well in the Iowa caucus, um, until until President Trump is demanding for the um, investigation of Jane Sanders, Bernie Sanders' wife, who had been previously in investigated for um, financial misrepresentations related to sort of this land deal and for a college that she worked for, something that the Department of Justice investigated and actually closed the investigation. Um, how long until we hear that, that Donald Trump is also sort of trying to push on those levers? Um, because it, it's what he does. And as we see, um, you know, Susan Collins stands up and says, you know, I th- we really think he learned his lesson and he's going to be more cautious next time as though he somehow accidentally did this in the first place. And then Donald Trump, hours later, Later, I think minutes later, says, no, it was a perfect call. I haven't mm-hmm. learned anything. Yeah, I haven't learned my lesson it, yeah. at all. Um, and, and that's one reason why I, I am curious to see sort of how senators, how, how Republicans sort of take this Romney moment and whether or not they are in any way going to attempt to push back on the president. Because I, I, I do think we're going to see the Justice Department leveraged against political opponents. And I think we're going to see other sort of nefarious things. You can imagine the president um, trying to pressure foreign leaders to make statements about his political opponents. Oh, for sure. Right? Just the most sort of basic things that it, it's hard to sort of point to what violation of the law that would be. And yet it would be deeply corrosive, really, really wrong. And I, I think I would be shocked if, if we don't see some manifestation of that, plus some crazy thing that none of us are even thinking about. Because that is the beauty of Donald Trump, his beauty to innovate and to present forms and modes of corruption and abuse of power that the founders didn't think of with sufficient specificity and that none of us are thinking about with sufficient specificity right now. So I guess there's an open question of whether we will all live long enough to see these possibilities if we're not all wiped up by coronavirus. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Dark. Very dark. Ser- I mean, yes, these are dark, dark, dark so lifting so far. So. <laughs> seriously? <laughs> um, yes, no, I think we should probably at least put a little caution on this. You know, this room it, feels really small. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the coronavirus, it is spreading. Um, but uh, there's a lot, of course, that we, we there are things that people know and we don't know about it. The, the questions of lethality and contagion have drawn analogies to SARS, uh, obviously, which uh, was – when was SARS? 2003? I think it was, it is. Oh, yeah, something oh, like that. Yeah. It was definitely post 9-11. But it, it raises some really interesting questions for listeners of this podcast. Also, we don't talk a lot about the sort of uh, – the, the, how homeland security kind of informed a whole new way of thinking and preparation for uh, viruses and other kinds of outbreaks and contagion. But obviously that public health component 
came to the fore after 9-11 and with SARS as well. And now it's sort of being brought up again and thought about in the context of coronavirus. Uh, obviously, pretty dramatic actions in China with the quarantining of, you know, whole cities of millions and millions of people. Uh, it is probably news to a lot of Americans that there is a city in Wuhan in China that has upwards of 12 million people in it. So there's been a little bit of a public education of just how really quite big and populous China is, right? Um, so it's been kind of fascinating to watch Americans sort of reacting to that piece of it. But Tammy, let me start with you on this question. I mean, talk about what we're seeing in terms of the Chinese government response to this. I mean, as a logistical feat, I have to say it seems like from the outside, it's been, you know, quite impressive insofar as the government uh, is able to move to quarantine cities of this size. Perhaps that wouldn't, shouldn't be so completely surprising from an authoritarian country like China that has the ability to mobilize a government uh, against its population. But I'm curious, you know, what you're seeing in the way that China is responding to this, and can we learn anything or start to ask questions about the way that you know a authoritarian centralized regime responds to a, a public health crisis like this versus you know a decentralized more open society like the United States right and so you start with the fact that you know we talk about globalization being about opening up even closed countries so that they are penetrated by information and people flowing in and out. And we talked about we talk about that with respect to China a lot in the sense that some people argue that it can't remain a hard authoritarian state when it's open to the world in all these ways, doing business with all these Western companies. And, you know, um, but I think that one of the interesting aspects of the Chinese model of authoritarianism is the way that it has innovated using tech tools, um, you know, and using manipulation of online information to channel public sentiment, to control public information rather than just trying to shut everything down. Now, you know, viruses don't care what kind of government you have, right? Um, and a very populous and still relatively underdeveloped country is going to face a massive public health challenge when confronted with a highly communicable and deadly disease. So that's just a given. But I do think that there are aspects of the the fact that China is an authoritarian government that really did shape the response. And the New York Times did a great deep dive on some of this um, last week. And Nick Kristoff wrote a really nice kind of follow-up column on this, making the point that Although the symptoms first emerged at the beginning of December, basically local government officials were in denial. Uh, they didn't want to report bad news up the chain, right? <laughs> um, and then a doctor who tried to talk on WeChat about the virus was like shut down and essentially persecuted. So, you know, he's now become this sort of a uh, whistleblower figure, I guess, in forcing the Chinese government to admit that it had a real problem. And, you know, Christoph's point is that he says dictators often make poor decisions because they don't get accurate information. Because when you squelch independent journalism or independent civil society and you punish people for telling you bad news, then you're only going to get good news. And that's true. But I think that there's another dimension here um, that the Chinese are confronting now, now that they have opened up to the World Health Organization, now that they are trying to keep people from behaving in ways that might spread this disease farther. And th that's that dictatorships routinely lie to people. It's just part of how they do business. And what that means, and Václav Havel wrote about this wonderfully, is that citizens who live under authoritarian regimes become incredibly cynical and mistrustful of all information. Um, they have to be. They have to live as skeptics. And so when you then want to give them public health information about how long it takes to incubate this disease or how long you need to watch for symptoms or what to do to avoid transmission, people aren't going to believe you. Right. And if you say, you know, no, you really need to stay in quarantine so you don't infect your family, they're not going to do it. They're going to try and find a way around the rules because their whole lives they spend trying to figure out how to get around the rules, arbitrary rules imposed by an authoritarian regime. And so it's that dynamic between human nature 
and authoritarianism that I think now is, you know, giving China problems and trying to control the spread of this virus. Susan, it reminds me of, I think it was last week, the, the White House tweeted out photos of President Trump in the Situation Room doing a big interagency meeting on coronavirus. He got a little bit of guff for it because there were pictures of CIA and NSA on the wall and he was sort of showing the people there. But, I mean, it raises... <laughs> Guys, don't show faces. Don't show plainly faces. visible. <laughs> plainly visible. Uh, yeah. Um, but it was, it was making me... As, as, as that was happening, what I was thinking, this is kind of to Tammy's point, you know, the president faced so much skepticism in the face of the killing of Soleimani over the question of why it was justified and what the Iranians were up to. And we talked about this in part because his reputation of distortions, of lies, of dissembling, you know, d- erodes his credibility in the eyes of a large number of, of people, including elected representatives. And then I wondered if he was sort of trying to portray in a way like, don't worry, it's the entire government that I have working on this problem. We're all in. I mean, I don't think he was thinking that. But it does raise the interesting question of, you know, whether or not at a time in which we find ourselves now, if the virus were to spread here and become a big problem, could the president be as effective uh, as one would expect, as Tammy explained, a president to be able to be in an open society in which, you know, you do trust your elected officials to be delivering truthful, helpful, actionable information about public health? And we don't, you know, presume that they're lying to us in the midst of an outbreak. Yeah, so I, I think there would be really significant questions about credibility um, from sort of the U.S. perspective. You know, I think there are also significant questions about the function of the interagency process. So, you know, there are, there are lots of processes that sort of um, remain dormant, or we don't really understand the extent to which um, we have serious brain drain or, or really sort of gaps in um, in large interagency coordination systems until a very very stressful event occurs, and um, you know. Look, the the threat of global pandemics is, is a stressful thing for the for uh, the U.S. government to go through. You know, the Obama administration, um, uh, in responding to Ebola, you know, had to appoint one individual to sort of be centrally accountable. Um, you know, it, it took a heavy lift to to sort of respond to these incidents in the past, and and also to respond to respond to these incidents um, in the right way, because it's not always uh, just about getting people to to take the threat seriously. It's also about deciding, you know, what to communicate. So, so one thing I was struck by is um, there was a an article in the Washington Post that was written by um, by a, a physician um, or a, by a journalist who covers uh, who covers medicine. Excuse me. Then um, the title, which is "Get a Grip, America: The Flu Is Much Is a Much Bigger Threat Than Coronavirus for Now." And basically, the point of the op-ed is: Look, you know, eight thousand people have died from the flu. We have a vac- We have a vaccine against the flu. Americans routinely don't get their flu shots, and so having everybody. Focus focus on this threat of this new novel thing is actually sort of a silly use of public attention. And instead, we should be talking about a very, very present threat. And that, um, yes, there are some ways that we should be especially concerned about coronavirus. Um, The flu we know is seasonal. So we know that it's not going to sort of continue and get worse and worse. We we know that the threat will resolve come March and April. Um, You know, but again, you, you know, public attention and public concern and public action is a limited resource. And so, what do you direct it to and when? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, you know, obviously part of uh, government's role in responding to a virus like this is just trying to keep people healthy and treat people when they're sick and prevent transmission. But part of it is managing the psychology around it, like you were just saying, Susan. And I really um, – one of the things that has really struck me over the last week or so is the difference between the Obama administration's approach on that kind of public messaging psychological dimension, the Obama administration's response to Ebola and the Trump administration's response to coronavirus. So, you know, Ebola cropped up in a really um, poor country that did not have the resources or the infrastructure to handle an effective response. The Obama administration made a decision to send over U.S. military and civilian units to help manage the Ebola response. There was some controversy about sending American citizens into harm's way, and the Obama administration had to make an argument about how it's really better to deal with it there than to have it spread and then have to deal with it here. And then there was that incident, you might remember, of the nurse 
Um, right. And so when she came to the Oval Office and he hugged her in front of the entire country, he was saying, don't panic. Your government has this in hand. We have the capabilities to deal with this and we have lots of stuff to worry about. Put this in perspective. Okay, so contrast that to, you know, this very quick decision to try and disincent to put out a travel, not just a travel warning, but effectively a do not go, which is stronger than a normal travel warning. And then, you know, to cut flights and to quarantine people coming in, which may in fact be a, a necessary public health measure. But it's all sort of this draconian, oh my God, this is really a big deal. We have to do big things in response. At the same time, the president himself isn't really reassuring people. Yeah. And let's keep in mind who was one of the sort of chief fear mongers during Ebola, Donald Trump, then, you know, sort of uh, a wannabe political candidate. And so, you know, I think it's both a question of what are the president's instincts and is it to tamp down and have people be calm or is it to, you know, to spin them up? And and then, of course, you know, Tim, your, your answer sort of um, gets at this. But the idea of what are the true motivations here? Yeah. So already the Chinese government has come forward and said this overreaction from the United States has nothing to do with actual, uh, you know, health response. It's not going to do anything to help. And they might even be right. It's just about <laughs> trying to hurt us. And yeah. then you have Wilbur Ross going on television speculating on the consequences to the Chinese economy, right? And so this this question... So speculating, that, like, can we just say, in an insane chain of logic... That makes no economic sense at all, but speculating nonetheless. Shocking that Wilbur Ross <laughs> would get the uh, the basic facts wrong, but right, it, it certainly doesn't help anybody who's already suspicious of the president's motivations. Of you know, well, why is he doing this, and is it really necessary, and should we really be taking this seriously? And I just also want to just cast our minds back to that hurricane where the president like took a sharpie and like drew Alabama into the, you know, the hurricane's path, um, which was troubling. And then some more recent stories about how NOAA scientists, NOAA scientists were sort of treated during that whole thing. So it makes me think, you know, uh, who's at the CDC? Uh, are they people who are going to be able to come out and be credible? Um, Robert Redfield is the head of the CDC. Is he going to, you know, say something the president doesn't like and get shut down? It kind of just the mind wanders uh, based on some past uh, sort of instant we've seen where the president does these sort of wacky things. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, you want to go first? Sure. So yesterday, although we didn't talk about it very much, we made small reference to it yesterday was the State of the Union. Mm. The State oh, of the Union is freaking awesome, guys. Don't you all feel great? But as is typical, the Democrats had an elected official as their respondent, the party that's not in the White House always does a response. You'll remember Marco Rubio and the bottles of water one year. So this year, oh, yeah. the respondent, um, designated Democratic respondent, was the governor of Michigan, my home state, Gretchen Whitmer. And I am so delighted that she decided to give her response to the State of the Union from my high school. There you go. Um, and it, which is where her two daughters go to high school, and that's why she she chose it. Um, and so there's this fantastic picture, which I will put up on our show website, of Governor Whitmer standing in front of a massive East Lansing Trojans uh, seal on the wall of the high school, surrounded, of course, by the typical American flags and blue pipe and drape. But What was your mascot? The Trojans. The Trojans. Oh, yeah. Go and Trojans. you can just imagine how much fun we had <laughs> on Friday Night Football oh my. Games. <laughs> what did you want to have? Yeah. <laughs> the cheers were particularly Oof. not safe for work. Wow. wasn't expecting that revelation. <laughs> All right. Susan, thrill us. Mine is less thrilling. Actually, it's more thrilling. You guys are going to be really excited about this. Oh. So my object lesson is that Ben and I have been on a little bit of a book tour. Um, where Wait we a minute. You read a book? We read a book. <laughs> and I am going to be checking to make sure all of you have personally <laughs> ordered it. I want to see receipts. Um, so we've been on this book tour. We went to New York and, um, and we were up in Boston yesterday. Um, and so we've gotten to meet a lot of people at these various book signings and events. Um, and People keep coming up to me over and over and saying, oh, I love and 
Is it Lawfare? Is it CNN? Is it any of the many things that I do? Hands down, the comment I get most often, I love rational security. The rational security listeners um, are out in force and um, are disappointed that uh, Shane and Tammy are not with us on our tour. (laughs) As part of the book tour. (laughs) Uh, They know it's not a rational security book. (laughs) Exactly. But but that's because they know the book would not exist without us, right, Shane? Exactly. Yes. Well, we are acknowledged in it. Some of us were even in the dedication. It's true. It is true. Anyway, I just thought my object is to take all of that love that is out there, and there is a lot of it, and bring it back to the Jungle Studio and say thank you guys for um, for the nice comments. And I am, as for each person I've said, thanks so much. I'll tell Shane and Tammy that you said that. And here I am proving on the show. Aww. That I am telling Shane and Tammy. You that told you guys the truth. Are, um, we love you, listeners. Too. Thank you all very, very best. much. And if you like the book, I did write it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, all right, my object actually is going to recommend another podcast, but don't stop to listen to this one before you're listening to this one. Uh, so, listeners may know the series Fiasco and before that, Slow Burn by a journalist named Leon Nafok, who did an amazing. Uh, kind of audio serial narrative version of Watergate. I think it was last year that he did the Clinton impeachment trial, which is incredibly relevant. He did the Florida election recount uh, for this new series fiasco he does over at Luminary. Uh, and I think debuting tomorrow, if not today, uh, is his latest one on the Iran-Contra affair, which I love because, A, I wrote a book partly about John Poindexter, so I spent a lot of time writing, reporting on Iran-Contra and, and, and researching it. Um, it is, though, I mean, one of these sort of forgotten scandals that is so incredibly relevant to the moment that we are in. And there is something that I've always thought about sort of scandals in the Trump era that are much more like Iran-Contra than they are uh, like Watergate. And I think Leon's going to blow that idea up and spend a lot of time on it. Uh, he interviewed a lot of very key players for this story uh, and some also the people have you know rarely ever heard of, some really obscure people in the scandal. Uh, I think it's going to be really great. Listeners will really like it. His other stuff has been superb. Uh, so check it out. Luminary's fiasco, Iran-Contra. Now you can go listen to that right after you hear the credits. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Can you buy your book at lawfareblog.com? Or mm. bookstore.lawfare.lawfarebooks.lawfarebooks.bookstoreplace.place. Right. I'm going to unmake this segment. <laughs> or perhaps <laughs> just Amazon. <laughs> unmake this segment. You'd love to. You wouldn't dare. You'd love it just I'm making the, way it the is. podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Facebook. You can twal- follow us, twallow us too, on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a nice rating and review. It helps people find the show, and we appreciate that. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is produced and edited by Jen Padia Howell. Music this week by Mitt Romney with his stirring version of the solo from Les Miserables on my own. Oh, <laughs> Mitt. The theater geeks in the audience are going to appreciate that one. <laughs> As they turn your dreams to shame. <laughs> you know what? Mitt Romney, at the end of the day, still has a dressage horse named Rafalka and a car elevator, so he's going to be just fine. He'll be fine. He'll be <laughs> yeah. fine. And a backup piano soloist named Sophia Yan, should he ever want one. <laughs> on behalf of my good friend Smara Kaufman, with us, Susan Hennessy and Margaret Taylor. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.